Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. I've got either good news or bad news, depending on the kind of person you are. We are embarking on a study of Matthew 24 to 25, the last of Matthew's five long discourses, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse because he says it on the Mount of Olives. This means we are going to be discussing eschatology or the end times. And in my experience, most people either love it or hate it. Uh, Some people are just excited about the topic of the end times, or there's something inside of them that dies. So a a few preliminary matters require some brief comment here. Uh, Some, if not most, come to these sorts of issues with their minds already made up. They know the position that their church or school takes, and their purpose in studying is to hunt for ammunition so they can attack their theological opponents. But this is hardly the purpose of Jesus in Matthew 24. Though we're looking at something obviously much more eschatological and uh, end times than, say, the Sermon on the Mount, still what we have here is a thoroughly practical message given to encourage faithfulness and perseverance and mission in the light of adversity, to increase our hope for the return of the Lord Jesus as as we uh, are spurred on to diligent service. The purpose of Matthew 24 and also 25 is not to uh, equip us to hunt for heresy and divide the church, but to give solemn warnings for faithfulness and mission as we experience hardship. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, some people avoid this chapter. Uh, The implicit attitude of many seems to be, uh, what a pity Jesus had to muddle up all of his teaching with all of this confusing eschatology. Would it have just been better for him to stick to the golden rule or talking about loving one another or something like that? But this has been written for our instruction. And as one of Matthew's five major blocks of teaching, it demands our serious consideration. So the two extremes to avoid are ignoring this discourse because it's just difficult and divisive on the one hand, and on the other hand, to so emphasize more disputable matters uh, that we ignore the main thrust and especially the, uh, to the needless exclusion of our fellow disciples who are sincerely grappling with this difficult text but come to different conclusions. So we can differentiate and we need to differentiate what is prominent and clear in the text and what is minor and unclear in the text. Now, another important differentiation concerns the relationship between interpretation and systematic theology. Now, follow me on this. In general, the overall process is to first inductively study uh, the biblical data, seeking to discover the original meaning intended by the original author for the original audience. That data is then later organized into a systematic whole. That's the project of theology. Now, what we're doing in a series like this is uh, in the former category. That is biblical exegesis, interpretation. So there are inevitably going to be certain end times questions that will arise when we're studying Matthew 24 and 25. 
And a discussion of these logical questions, uh, it has its place, but in an exegetical study like this one, we want to be careful to make sure we are focused on answering the questions this text is concerned about, not necessarily the questions that trouble us. There will just have to be times when we're content to say things like, well, that's a good question, but Matthew 24 doesn't talk about that. Now, I say all of this to prepare us for the question of the rapture, which often gets brought up in Matthew 24. Some do see this event in Matthew 24, but it will become clear that I do not see a separate coming of Jesus for the church, separate for his coming to rule the world, in Matthew 24. Now, that's not to say that such a conclusion doesn't come up from collating biblical data of Matthew 24 with other passages. But as I see it, Matthew simply is not concerned with that particular issue. So those are two introductory matters that need to be addressed at the outset, being sure that we give an appropriate, balanced amount of attention to the text, as well as properly situating our study in the interplay between exegesis and the construction of systematic theology. One of the main issues in actually interpreting this passage concerns uh, the timing of the events it describes, particularly as it relates to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, everybody needs to know some history. Imagine with me that you are talking with someone who professes to be interested in the 19th century, particularly American history during the second half of that century. So we're talking about 1850 to 1900. And the person, let's just imagine, has collected antiques and books from the era and even has clothing to get dressed up in period-appropriate attire. But, but imagine then that as you're talking with this person, you mention the Civil War and they say, the Civil what? In this situation, you would be incredulous. How could someone profess to be interested in American history during the second half of the 1800s and not know about the Civil War in the 1870s, for crying out loud? Not only is this a major event, but it also colors so many other facets of life at that time. Similarly, anyone interested in the happenings of the first century AD, so read people who are interested in studying the New Testament, uh, they, they just have to know about the battles of the first century, particularly the one around AD 70. And, and here I'm thinking of Titus's invasion under his father, the Emperor Vespasian. Now, we don't have the time to discuss this in detail, but I encourage you to investigate this fascinating and crucial subject. But since we can't really understand what's happening in Matthew 24 without a bit of historical background, uh, let me read to you a brief excerpt uh, from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, uh, an article by Garbarino. Quote, In AD 70, Roman soldiers led by Titus sacked Jerusalem and burned down the temple, ending the first Jewish war. This war had begun four years earlier during the reign of Nero when the Jews revolted against the Romans because of religious tensions and taxation. Thousands of Jews starved to death during the siege of Jerusalem. Josephus claimed that uh, 1,100,000 Jews died in the siege. That's Josephus' Jewish War 693. During the attack, Roman soldiers looted and burned the temple. Though Josephus makes the improbable claim that Titus ordered for the temple to be preserved and his soldiers disobeyed. The victorious legions carried many of the temple's treasures back to Rome. And the Arch of Titus in Rome preserves a depiction of Titus's conquest along with the looting itself. 
end quote. Notice the kind of light that this sheds on our text for today as I read it. We'll be reading Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. This passage sets us up for the reason and the major concepts of the discourse. So let's start in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? One of the key interpretive issues when it comes to Matthew 24 is its relationship to the destruction of Jerusalem, particularly the temple, as the culmination of the Jewish wars in 70 AD. Some are persuaded that Jesus' discourse refers to events fulfilled in the past, that is, from our perspective. This, this view is called the preterist view, as from the Latin meaning past. Others are persuaded that Jesus' discourse refers to events which are, again from our perspective, uh, still to come. This is conveniently called the futurist view, so there's no Latin words to learn here. In the remaining time of our session, we will consider reasons for thinking that the events which Jesus describes are fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then in our next session, we will consider reasons for thinking Jesus is pointing to events that are yet to be fulfilled, as well as some attempts to harmonize these two perspectives. So with the time that we have, let's look at five reasons to think that Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. We have already seen the first. Uh, Verses 1 to 3 clearly frame the whole discourse as a response to Jesus' statement about the temple's destruction. Uh, Now, this is even clearer in Mark and Luke's version, which have the question simply as, quote, When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? End quote. And the antecedent of these things is clearly there not being one stone of the temple being left upon another. Second, there are elements of Matthew 24 which are localized. That is, they are specifically about the destruction that will come upon Judea, in verse 16, and the holy place, that is the temple, in verse 14. We can compare with Luke's version in uh, Luke 21, 24. This people will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, it's possible, of course, that there will be a future rebuilding of the temple and that important end times events will happen in Jerusalem. Uh, But the argument here is that readers of Matthew, again, sometime around the year 70, would surely be expected to link the disaster that comes specifically upon the temple in Judea with the atrocities that occurred uh, in their time. Third, and this is related to the above point. Uh, the, dis- the discourse emphasizes the need to flee. In other words, get out of there. If, if you find out that it's time to leave and you've packed your suitcase down in the living room, don't go down and get it. You just got to get out as soon as possible. Um, at the time, the walled and guarded city is the safe place. We would expect the admonition to be, hurry up and get into the city. But its destruction is so certain that the safest course of action is actually to get out while there's still time to do so. 
And this corresponds closely with Titus' siege of Jerusalem, not letting anything or anyone in or out so as to weaken the defenders by starvation. Fourth, mention is made of the abomination of desolation. We'll discuss this more eventually when the time comes, but it could correspond to the plan to set up a bust of Caligula in the temple in uh, 40 to 41. Or it could be the zealots' occupation of the temple as they prepare to fight the Romans. Fifth, uh, the mention of this generation in verse 34 seems to require a fulfillment in the first century. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, some have interpreted this as the generation that exists once these things start in the future. Or others have taken it to mean this generation as a kind of people, uh, as in like the Jewish people will continue to exist until these things happen. But the most natural way to understand this expression uh, is to take it as referring to the people who lived during Jesus' earthly life and also approximately 40 years later at the destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. This is just a cursory and brief sketch of some reasons why uh, we might want to see Matthew 24 as being fulfilled in uh, the year 70. Now, in the famous words of Nicodemus, does our law judge a man before it hears him? Thus, it's important to listen charitably to this view, acknowledge its strengths, observe its weaknesses, uh, but then also want to do the same for other views. We can't come to this with our minds already made up and just looking for reasons to uh, destroy people who disagree with us. It's important to listen carefully to both sides. And that's what we're going to do in our next episode as we consider reasons to think Matthew 24 points to events still future. But whatever conclusion a person comes to on this topic, uh, let's not miss an important application that comes uh, from the overall premise of preterism, namely that history is important. Jesus really lived in the first century, and he really did speak to issues relevant in his day and in his age. His mind was not purely captured by speculative theology. He lived and breathed in history, and he spoke to people in history about history. Understanding Jesus, then, requires that we get to know his history and his situation in which he ministered. Following Jesus, similarly, requires that we know our own history and that we are not detached from the issues of our culture, but also, like Jesus, speak God's truth to it. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.